Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute. And once again, welcome. How should we understand the relationship of the Septuagint to what we traditionally mean by Holy Scripture? What difference does it make to biblical interpretation and the vocabulary of theology if we work with the Septuagint alongside our Hebrew and Greek Testaments? And what does the field of Septuagint studies look like now, and where is it going? Good day to you. I am Mark Garcia, President and Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone Theological Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome you today to episode number 27 of Greystone Conversations. Today's episode is the continuation of a conversation with Matthew Albanese regarding the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. In the first part of our conversation, we discussed how complicated, indeed how fraught with risks, such language is, since there is no single Septuagint, and it is far more than a translation in the modern sense of that word. We explored the importance of approaching the Septuagint as the first commentary on the Hebrew Bible. In this second part of our conversation, Matthew and I discussed the vexed question of the status of the Septuagint in relation to the Hebrew and Greek Testaments, which the Church identifies, by creed and confession, as Holy Scripture. We also move more substantially into the rich topic of the New Testament use of the Old Testament in light of the Septuagint, including the heavy use of the Septuagint by the New Testament. To zero in on particular case studies for these grand and sweeping questions, we then discuss Matthew's own research project in Greek Isaiah and the fascinating ways in which Greek Isaiah displays an internal ordering and various important intratextual features, an ordering and features which signal not only the important unity of Isaiah, even for this very ancient translation of it, but also the remarkable hermeneutical moves made by the Septuagint within a single book. After this, we turn to the current state of Septuagint research, directions that research is going, promising but largely untapped areas for future work. And then Matthew offers some suggestions for where any thoughtful Christian reader can begin in one's own practical appreciation of the Septuagint. As noted in our last episode, Matthew Albanese is one of Greystone's recently appointed associate fellows, focusing his Greystone activity in the large area of what has long been termed Oriental Studies. In the months and years to come, our Lord willing, you can look forward to Matthew teaching series and modules for Greystone and Christian Syriac, Aramaic, the Septuagint, and various portions of the canon of Christian scripture. In fact, as I speak today, Matthew Albanese and I are in advanced discussions about a five-week short series of lectures on the Septuagint 
which you can look forward to learning about in the days to come. Thank you once again for spending some time with us today to reflect together on the shape and direction of greater faithfulness to our triune God. And now, episode number 27 of Greystone Conversations. Matthew, thank you once again for joining us to continue the conversation we began last time about the importance of the Septuagint and some of the classic questions as well as perhaps unexpected features of the significance of the Septuagint. Thank you very much for what you've been able to alert us to so far. I'm looking forward very much to continuing our conversation on this today. And as I said last time, as we were closing, there's a real big, I think probably unwieldy question that tends to be the standard one in the minds of Christian students of the Septuagint or those who first hear about it. And that is how we should understand the Septuagint in relationship to our concept and doctrine of Scripture, in what way the Septuagint should be linked up with Holy Scripture. But before we get into that large, unwieldy, probably impenetrably difficult question, which I know has a lot of complications and nuances, we were just talking a little bit about our last conversation and talking a bit about your reference in that conversation to the Septuagint in relationship to something we see in the Psalms. And there was something you wanted to clarify for us about that earlier conversation. Could you kind of remind us of what the context was and then give us a little bit more clarity on how we should understand the question of the Septuagint and Psalm 8? Thanks again for having me on, Mark. Upon further reflection on our conversation from last time, I think I had the passages from the Psalms backwards Ah. that I was thinking about per our discussion about the translator's patterns between Elohim and Theos, or Elohim and Angelos, I was thinking backwards. So let me review what I said. I started with Psalm 82, and I said the translator is just translating straightforwardly from Elohim to Theos, speaking both of God and the singular, and then Theon, regarding the gods, these members of the divine councils. And then I looked back into Psalm 8, and I said, here the translator shows familiarity with context by translating Elohim as Angelos. He's made man a little lower than the angels, except... I think the argument that I wanted to make was the other way around. In 2016, I wrote a paper for a conference, and I was arguing actually the opposite. And this is the train of thought I wanted to follow. I was interested to discover whether the Septuagint translators were familiar with the concept of the divine council. In my research, I found one place, though there are a few other texts that have come to mind since, but there was one place in particular that I found that the translator, or the translator of the Psalms specifically, was conveying this sense of divine counsel, the God in the presence of other gods, and this was in Psalm 82. So what I did is I looked at the translator of the Psalms' patterns of translating Elohim, and they were very consistent with Theos or Angelos, and so in Psalm 8 what you see is a contextually sensitive rendering. He's rendering the term Elohim, you've made man a little lower than the gods, you made him a little lower than the angels. This is an appropriate contextual rendering. However, in Psalm 82, we see something different. The use of angelos to translate Elohim is not present. Instead, we have two instances of God imagery. It says, God has taken his place, Elohim. He's taken his place in the divine council. And then in the midst of the Elohim, he shall judge. The first time we see Elohim, it's Theos, but the second time we see it, it's 
uh, thaus in the plural accusative. And this suggested to me that the translator was actually aware of the nuances of Elohim, and he sought to convey this by a distinct translation from what we had seen in Psalm 8. So it's a move to, to clarify, to move to explain what might otherwise at least be a question, be relatively ambiguous. So the translator is endeavoring to provide some clarity or explanation for it. Yes, that's correct. Hmm. Well, it's always helpful when you have something written that others can refer to for your fuller discussion than what you can do in a podcast conversation. So that's always helpful. But thanks for cleaning that up for us, Matthew. I appreciate that. Is it okay if we go to that large question that I've asked for your input on? I know that to explore the way we should relate the Septuagint to our understanding of Holy Scripture requires not just one hefty volume, but many. But in the admittedly very brief scope provided by a brief chat in a podcast context, are there at least some things that you would suggest that we keep in mind about the question, even if you may or may not have a real polished solution or answer for us? Are there at least some things that you could help us make sure we are thinking about as we explore the question? Yes, that's a great question. And the first thing we should keep in mind is that this is a very difficult question. There's a lot that goes into understanding the history of the Hebrew Bible, its textual criticism, the versions in Greek and Latin, Syriac, and how these are received, even in different geographical reasons. We have to remember that we live in a post-printing press culture where we think of textual transmission and textual copying in certain ways which weren't the standards of the ancient world for the most part. They weren't the standards of all of human history up until the printing press. And so we don't want to be anachronistic as we think about how the Bible was transmitted and even other ancient texts were transmitted and what was considered to be a reliable transmission. I think we should begin with that caveat, that awareness of those types of assumptions we have. So after that first point about difficulty, we can say that Maybe a second point we need to remember is that a translation is a transfer of information. It's a transfer of theme and lexemes, words, literary structures, a transfer of whole books. And so when we're talking about a translation of the Hebrew Bible, we're actually talking about the Hebrew Bible encoded into a different tongue, into a different cultural context. So that that has maybe two sides to it. It means that the Septuagint, and other Bible translations as well, but since we're talking about the Septuagint, I'll just use this terminology. The Septuagint is the Hebrew Bible. It is a translation of the Hebrew Bible, and I like to think of this not as two opposed pieces of literature, but overlapping literatures. It's a Venn diagram, and the specifics and statistics of these, the ratios, is very difficult, but I would say there's something like 95% overlap. Emmanuel Tov, who's an excellent textual critic, Hebrew Bible Septuagint scholar, says this is loosely quoted. It's often easy to forget that the Septuagint reflects the MT, the Masoretic text. So the Septuagint is built on the Masoretic Hebrew text. And just because there are differences and there are differences in words, sometimes portions of it are moved around. It's easy to think that these texts are divergent at many points, but it's, I think, more important, more fundamental to see that the Septuagint is derived from the Hebrew. So that's one side of the coin. The other side of this issue that I think is missed 
And I'm not only going to say it's motivated by post-printing press culture, because even Jerome and Augustine have this big discussion in the fourth century about textual variance and what is the sort of standard received authoritative text. But another side of this question that will often trip up more confessional readers of the Bible is the question, what is the standard text? With this question, what is the authoritative text? We should actually also ask this question in line with the first caveat, when we remember that the Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Bible. So to ask the question, what is the authoritative text? It's to say the Hebrew Bible. And because the Septuagint transfers it faithfully, although divergent at points, it transfers it faithfully, it's a false dichotomy to separate them in a lot of ways. And we see this in Christianity and in ancient Judaism. These texts are used, both of them, at the same time liturgically. They're used to transmit teaching. I think you see similar patterns at Qumran. These texts are probably more divergent at points from the proto-MT of the Masoretic Hebrew text. And these are still regarded with some authority, and they're still formative for communities. Ben Sira is a similar type of document. It's carrying on the tradition, maybe not with scriptural authority, but it's viewed as somehow transferring authority to the modern culture. And third, I think we can move on from this question to say, especially when we're considering divergences, that sometimes the Hebrew text will have content that is absent from the Septuagint. So maybe the Septuagint translators decided not to include some information. And sometimes we have information that's present in the Septuagint that's absent in the Hebrew text. Now, there can be all types of reasons for why this occurs. But I think an important starting point would consider that we should triangulate texts. We should see the whole production system of the Hebrew Bible, both in Hebrew and Greek, as one aiming at communicating the message of the Bible. So we have a nice core. We have so much overlap between these documents that that should probably be the base of where we go. And when I say probably, I mean it should be the base. And then we have some things around the edges that aren't so clear. And I think this is standard Christian orthodoxy. Like you see in Eusebius, we see these statements of canon. Look, we have the fourfold gospel. This is solid. We have the Pauline corpus. This is solid. What about second and third John? These are definitely received in some areas. There are certain books that are definitely not received in some areas. He has this taxonomy. And I think this is maybe a nice way of looking at what's going on in the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint. The majority of it is a place of agreement. And a majority of it is a place of overlap. But there are some things that we don't understand. So the Septuagint question as a question of tradition development could be located in the bigger question explored by scholars like Earl Ellis and and others who have identified and heavily documented various traditions evidenced within the New Testament itself, represented by each of the four Gospels, around which we can cluster other New Testament texts in order to better understand why the fourfold gospel is not one gospel and three redundant versions of the same, but traditions reflecting different concerns geographically, ecclesiastically, even theologically, distinct and different but harmonious, though with all of their diversity very much in view. The Septuagint question could therefore be located in that same bigger picture of tradition development? I think that's a helpful insight, and 
I think that there is definitely some overlap there. Personally, I would approach the question with individual books, individual books of the Hebrew Bible being, mm. being transferred in. And I've thought about this sort of synoptic view with the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is one of the big difficulties, understanding how this book got transmitted and what forms it took before the form we have in the MT. So basically... The Septuagint version of Jeremiah has two major problems from my point of view, and I think the viewpoint of many. It's shorter by a fifth than the MT. Which is quite a bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite a bit. It's shorter. Now, some of those differences are titles of kings and geographical locations and times of year and these things, but it's shorter by a fifth. So it's not only that. There's some content that's missing, and there are some chapters that are moved around. The oracles against the nations in the Hebrew text are at the end of the book, but in the Septuagint version of Jeremiah, they're in the middle of the book. And so we have to deal with this, especially because the Septuagint and the Hebrew Bible have existed alongside one another in the history of the church and in the history of Jewish tradition. In fact, it was the Greek-speaking Jews who translated the Septuagint version of Jeremiah. So the question then is, looking back from a so-called neutral standpoint, how do we understand the reception of both of these books into the tradition? And I think it's helpful to say they must have had something like a synoptic complementary account. It was okay to have both of them. And we know that it was okay to have both of them because believing communities had both of them. And it's important to appreciate that your discussion of the question reflects the fact that while you've read a lot on the Septuagint, you've also been lost in the weeds of of Septuagint research for quite some time. And you're seeing a lot of these things very, very up close as you have been working in your own project on Greek Isaiah. We haven't had a chance yet to talk about exactly what you've been doing in Greek Isaiah. Would it be possible for you to give us kind of a synopsis, a brief overview of what questions in Greek Isaiah and phenomena in Greek Isaiah have provoked your trajectory of research, your thinking about the Septuagint, what exactly you're looking at in Isaiah for us to gain a sense of what a case study might look like in serious Septuagintal scholarship? Yeah, I could talk of course, for a long time, at least 100,000 words, which is the length of the thesis. (laughs) Maybe we could scale that down for our purposes just a bit down to something more like the abstract. Of course. So I took a summer course in Göttingen, Germany, which is the home of the Septuaginta Unternehmen, where they do a lot of critical edition work and manuscript work. I took a summer class on Septuagint version of Isaiah there in 2014, not really having any desire to pursue the question for doctoral work. I was just interested in Septuagint, and I wanted to take a class, become more familiar with the field. Before the class began, we had to read something like 15 chapters of Hebrew and Greek Isaiah and take notes on them and compare them, read a bunch of the history of research, come to class and talk about the examples, the things we found. After reading about a quarter of the book, you get a feel for how a book works. And my impression after reading these chapters was that the translator of Septuagint Isaiah had literary concerns in mind. And I had, in reading the history of scholarship, history of research on this topic, I had never saw a full-length treatment on this idea, even though it was hinted at in places, primarily in the work of Art van der Kooy, Ross Wagner, even Joseph Ziegler from earlier in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. He commented on these things. There was never a a really developed view of this. And so I didn't think much of it at the time. Upon reading Greek Isaiah, I thought, this is clearly what he's doing. Isn't that strange that nobody has talked about this at length? But the more I thought about the question, 
the more it sort of troubled me. And I thought, I wonder how much one could develop this idea and how persuasive it actually is. So in pursuing the idea of literary coherence, consistency in literary themes, heightening of literary themes, the theological, literary, canonical tendencies of the translator, I first said, okay, I need to find a, a section of literature to analyze. You can't analyze 10 chapters of Greek Isaiah in depth because it would take you 10 years to do a good job. So I thought that I would look at the oracle against Babylon and the lament of the king of Babylon in chapters 13 and 14. This mm -hmm. was a nice sizable, it's about 50 verses or so, yep. three pages in the Hebrew Bible. So I looked at this and I started to find patterns of literary awareness between the chapters, within the chapters. And so my thesis explores the thematic, literary, and structural tendencies of the translator. So he focuses on on micro-literary structures, macro-literary structures, and canonical literary structures. So if I could summarize my thesis in a few sentences, I would say, and we've alluded to some of this in the previous episode, since the translator of Isaiah is typically regarded as a free translator, I sought to explain why his free translations existed as such, especially when the Hebrew text before him was clearly understood as he evidences elsewhere. So for example, we might have a statement in verse three that's relatively simple Hebrew and he translates it quote unquote accurately, word by word. And then we might have a similar or identical phrase later in the chapter where he deviates from the Hebrew. And you have to ask the question, why is he doing this? Why is he creating free translations in one place and literal translations in another place? And I after doing a lot of statistical work and broad reading in the book, I came to the idea, the conclusion, and I think I demonstrated it, that the translator is concerned to translate not only at this literal word-for-word -word type of level, but at the freer level where he's transferring themes through his, mm -hmm. his work. What is often considered to be free at the level of the word, I say is literal at the level of literary structure and the theme. So I'll give two, maybe three examples of this type of feature of emphasizing theme in a translation. In Isaiah 14, 13, which in an English translation says, you have said in your heart about the king of Babylon, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. But the translator of Greek Isaiah, he alters these phrases somewhat, and he does it in a bit of a strange way because Elsewhere in his book, he shows a knowledge of these Hebrew words and transfers the meaning of them very well into the Greek. But upon analysis here, and I can't go into specifics now, but as you look at the specific wording and the deviations into Greek, you see very similar patterns elsewhere in the book, especially in Isaiah 37, where God is mocking the king of Assyria. And he's reporting the speech of the king of Assyria and he's saying, you said this, but I'm going to do this to you. And it looks like the translator of Septuagint Isaiah has taken the literal translation from chapter 37 and imported it back into Isaiah 14 so as to make something of a literary and thematic parallel between these, saying that the king of Assyria and the king of Babylon are, in fact, the same. Yes, I see that. Right, right. So that's quite significant. That's a hermeneutical move and not only a literary one. Right. There's several examples which I think confirm my idea, and I'm not alone in this. It confirms my idea that the translator of the Greek Isaiah is reading 
and interpreting and rendering his Hebrew text of Isaiah in a holistic way. He's doing it on many levels at immediate literary context, larger literary context like chapters, and then a whole Isaianic context, and then even a whole Bible context. He's a good biblical theologian in this sense. I think our example from Isaiah 9 last week talked about the Tower of Babel being present yes, yes. as an addition. Right. And then there's another example in Isaiah 14:19 that is illustrative of this as well. So Isaiah 14:19 is very difficult. It's much longer in the Septuagint. It has some additions and it moves clauses around. It's quite perplexing at first glance. But what you notice when you examine the patterns of the translator quite closely is you see that he's again borrowing terminology, themes, language from later chapters and importing them back into chapter 14. So he does something very interesting. I think he's pulling from chapters 34 and from chapter 63. Chapter 34 is another apocalyptic type of chapter. So we see apocalyptic themes, the falling of stars, these cosmic undertakings, these cosmic upheavals. In chapters 13 and 14, you see this. And in chapter 34, you see this terminology about stars falling from the heavens. In this chapter in 34, you see mentions of blood and mountains. Well, this same language from 34 gets pulled into chapter 14. In addition, if you look at chapter 34, it talks about Edom and Bozrah. Well, the only other place that this is mentioned is in Isaiah 63. And so then you see terminology also from Isaiah 63 in Isaiah 14, 19. It's like the movie Inception. It's like a text within a text. And to me, this shows he not only has a thematic knowledge of the book between apocalyptic sections, but he has a thematic geographical knowledge of the book. He knows where individual words are located, and he sees those immediately as thematically related and related in terms of the literary tapestry. And so he finds some sort of familiarity with passages, and then he takes this connection and imports it wherever it seems appropriate. Now, I don't think this is arbitrary. There's a deep rationale behind what he's doing, and I've sought to demonstrate this in some papers. It's really quite remarkable and and fascinating. Two things come to mind as I'm listening to your remarks on how the Septuagint translator of Isaiah is, in a way, explaining one part of Isaiah in light of another. One is, it sounds very similar to what a number of New Testament scholars have argued with respect to New Testament documents, Richard Hayes comes to mind, especially with his extensive treatment of what are called interbiblical allusions. His book on echoes of scripture in Paul, for instance, and in other places, work on the Gospels as well. But you're suggesting that within Isaiah itself, the translator is identifying, drawing attention to thematic consonants, thematic allusions that should be linked up with one another, where one place should be read with another one in mind or stitched together with it, at least hermeneutically. That's one thing that comes to mind. The other, more simply, is that the translator, the Septuagint translator, appears to be working with a concept of Isaiah as a unity. The unity of Isaiah seems to be an assumption at work in his effort to draw connections, relationships between early Isaiah and what many would call second or even third Isaiah in the way that you've suggested. Does that sound right? That sounds right. (laughs) That sounds right to me. I think it's without a doubt that ancient interpreters saw unity in the book. 
even though I've only talked about back translating, I think there is forward translating as well. This tendency shows me that they see it as a canonical unity and that it was received as such. Yes, right. It's really quite interesting. Now, I'm conscious, of course, of the fact that we are talking about Isaiah in December. That's when we're having this conversation. So if there's any passage in Isaiah on people's minds these days, it would be the ninth chapter of Isaiah with the promise of the birth of the child. However, if there is another passage in Isaiah that's at least as famous, as well known all year long, it has to be the 53rd chapter of Isaiah because of its special relationship to the New Testament generally and traditional understandings of the person and work of Jesus Christ as well. And my understanding is that you have done a little bit of work on Isaiah 53 in the New Testament with the Greek Isaiah question in view as part of a bigger picture of why this question of Greek Isaiah is in fact significant for the New Testament. Is there something you could kind of alert us to along those lines of Isaiah 53 specifically, or even more generally, the significance of this question for New Testament reading? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, another very difficult question to explore. Well, we don't do any of the easy questions at Greystone, so... <laughs> that's right. are the best types of questions. Part of what motivated my interest in Greek Isaiah, of course, is its significance in the New Testament. Mm. What were the New Testament authors reading? What were they citing? Why sometimes does it differ from Greek Isaiah in agreement with the Hebrew and vice versa? So, and obviously, Isaiah 53 is important to New Testament authors. It's quoted and alluded to all the time, maybe in every book. My interest in Isaiah 53, and I've done a lot of the data gathering and the lexical work without many published conclusions or ready to publish conclusions, though hopefully in the future I'll have something in print. I wanted to take my observations from 1314 in my sense that my proposals are generally true of the book. I wanted to take this as a springboard to examine Isaiah 53. And in this examination of Isaiah 53, I think I'm getting somewhere in, in terms of exploring the book and confirming conclusions or confirming ideas that I've had elsewhere. Mm. And I guess to situate this in, in a scholarly discussion, a lot of New Testament scholars have said that the Septuagint of Isaiah 53 deviates from the Hebrew. And I think that's a given. There's deviation in a lot of points. Certain things are added, certain things are missing from the Hebrew text. So that means when the New Testament authors are citing this passage in the New Testament, it means they're citing a mistranslation, and thus they're forming theology based on a mistranslation. And so my question is, is that a legitimate practice? How are you supposed to understand that? I think it might be something like a false dichotomy. I think that's the way that I at least understand it. And taking my proposal or my ideas about how Greek Isaiah works, I want to say that the mere fact of deviation or omission or addition to a Hebrew text, it doesn't entail false interpretation or mistranslation. What it in fact can be doing, and I think it is doing in Isaiah 53 in a lot of places, is that the translator is explicating the text. He's finding themes that are indeed present, and he's heightening them. And by doing that, he's also subordinating certain themes. Maybe not every theme to him is significant. And I think what you see in the New Testament is that the citations of this chapter, when they're coming from what we regard as the Septuagint, they often just confirm the overall sense of the passage and or themes elsewhere in Isaiah. So in the end, it's, it's not really a mistranslation of a passage. It's just they're citing a translation of Isaiah. 
Right. All right. It is quite interesting and so helpful. Thank you for that. With the few minutes we have left for today, Matthew, would you mind giving us some sense of what the major questions, resources, and directions are for Septuagint research? Where are things being done in terms of scholarship, not just location-wise, but where in the field of Septuagint research is the most going on? That seems quite promising. What remain the big questions in this field, and why do they matter? Can you give us some direction on that? That's a great question, and I think a good answer is the field is wide open. Hmm. There was a lot of interest in the 20th century, but it was geographically spread out interest. And I think in the past 30 or so years, there's been a more focused, more methodologically rigorous interest. You have really great hubs of research now taking place in Spain and France and Germany, Israel, England, the U.S. So there are nice hubs to get connected with. And the International Organization of Septuagint and Cognate Studies is the organization for exploring Septuagint. Mm. That's the IOSCS the Septuagint Society. People in that society explore questions of lexicography. What do Septuagint words mean? Either do they mean the same things as classical Greek, Hellenistic Greek, or are they mainly influenced by the Hebrew meanings? Or are they introducing new meanings? So this is a really important place to work. We have a couple of good Septuagint lexicons, but there's always improvement to be had. We don't have critical editions for all of the books of the Septuagint. The Göttingen mm -hmm. Septuagint series is excellent, and they have several of them, but we still need critical editions of several major mm -hmm. books. This means people that are interested in manuscripts, people that are interested in the reception of the Hebrew Bible into other languages like Syriac, and even more late antique renderings of the Bible like Coptic and even though this might be pretty early, but Armenian and, and these types of things, this is an important realm of research. There's research to be done in the Hexapla. There's research to be done in translation technique, which is what I work in, New Testament use of the Old Testament. So really, if you're interested in something related to biblical studies, Septuagint is a great place to go. You could probably pick any chapter of the Hebrew Bible and do an analysis of the Septuagint renderings, and you'd find something very, very interesting, whether that's lexicographical, semantic, text critical. It's a wide open field. And that's a helpful remark you had there just at the end. It prompts maybe my last question for us today. Assuming this is not a situation where someone is intending to go into Septuagint research per se, but still wants to gain a responsible appreciation for the Septuagint in relationship to the Hebrew Bible, where do we begin? Where does one begin to get a sense of how the Septuagint reads and how these issues might actually bear upon our reading of the Bible as a whole? What are some things we could do? I think the most important thing is to just get a Septuagint and a Hebrew Bible, assuming you know the languages, Greek and Hebrew, and begin reading them side by side. Begin reading the whole text of Genesis in Hebrew, and then go back through the Greek text of Genesis and get a feel of the translation patterns, get a feel of the types of vocabulary that are being used. This is the best place to begin. The next best place, maybe alongside this, is to get an introduction to the Septuagint. There are several good ones. Karen Jobes and Moises Silva have a very good one. There's a second edition out now. Hmm. That's a good starting introduction. And then there's another one published by SBL Press by Natalio Fernandez Marcos, which is the Septuagint in context. That's another good introduction. They have bibliographical material at the end of chapters that would be important for readers as well. Mm -hmm. 
And then another good place to go is the Text and Canon Institute at Phoenix Seminary, led by John Mead and Peter Gurry. They've both done solid text critical work, and you can get information from them at ps.edu slash TCI. They're not paying me to say that. It's a really good institute. <laughs> it's a good place for information. Fantastic. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, it's great to know what kind right. of resources are out there and to know there's one we can trust. <laughs> now, I did say that would be my last question, but I want to cheat by tagging one on the end here. Any quick reactions or thoughts on translations, English translations of the Septuagint? In terms of English translations of the Septuagint, there are four that scholars typically use. Two are in English and the other in non-English languages. The two in English would be the Nets translation, which is solid. I think it was the first major English translation of the 21st century put into English, and it's good, published by OUP. So Nets is a great place to be reading the English of the Septuagint, which is, again, translation of a translation. And also there's a new one put out by Ken Penner. I think he's the editor, and this is the Lexham. Lexham put this out. It's another translation. And I have both of them. I use both of them to check my work and to compare my own renderings. I would say that the Nets is a little more strict, and the Lexham edition is a little freer, though it's, it's a fine translation. Then there are two others in German and in French. The French rendering is La Bible d'Alexandrie. This is great. It's put out by Cerf, C-E-R-F. And then there's a, the Septuagint of Deutsch, which is the German translation. If you're doing the rigorous translation work and text-critical work, you'd want to look at all four of these. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that, Matthew. And thank you for everything that you've helped us to appreciate about the Septuagint and its significant role in our endeavor to be faithful readers and users of Holy Scripture. It's been a delight. It's been a joy to learn these things, to be reminded of some things we may have forgotten and to be encouraged to press on in a serious reading of the Septuagint and of Holy Scripture as a whole. We're looking forward to your continued work with Greystone, looking forward to the next opportunity we'll have to study with you. But thank you for your time with us today and last time, and uh, we look forward to next time, our Lord willing. Thank you, Mark. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules, at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just $1. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone. Greystone.